The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. When one considers his record as a juvenile and as an adult, a pattern of reaction to stress emerges. At the present time, he's hurt no one during his crimes. This may not be the case in the future if this subject is merely incarcerated and released. It is the opinion of this examiner that Roger should have the advantage of psychiatric evaluation, both for his own sake and that of the community. A 1970 report on Roger Kivy by A.G. Van Rafstein, polygraph examiner, seven years before the first known murder, from Trace Evidence, by Bruce Henderson, Episode 29, Monsters Are a Trial. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm your host, Jill. For my new listeners, I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area. I love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology educator and studying serial murder. I decided to turn my love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so I can share these stories with you. Each month or so, I will discuss a book I've pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes. I like to follow the steps of the author to give you the story from his or her point of view. Today's episode is the third of the trilogy, called Second Cast, where I delve into the paths not taken, update the story, add analysis and related material that fascinates and completes the story. These episodes tend to have a surprising quality to them and enables me to bring some interesting subjects into play. Spoiler alert! Listen to episodes 27 and 28 before this one. Now, this episode is out a tad later than I wanted. Thank you, Hurricane Ida, for dropping ungodly amounts of rain upon my town, causing flooding and a rapid dismantling of my podcast studio in my basement, which caused a total panic. And even this, as I was recovering from my melanoma surgery, I then slipped, fell in the wet basement, getting lovely purple-green bruises all over my left side and a concussion. So all of this was going on while my hubby is recovering from totaling his car right before Ida hit. He is fine. Bruised, sore, everybody is on the mend, but we were a total mess. And the good news is I got the best possible lab reports back, so I am good to go. But I really think I have to burn sage or sprinkle holy water or something, because really, it's been a ride. A big thank you and shout out to Murder Bookies, not B-A-M-F and O-D-P-H-607 for the five-star reviews. It means so much to me that you are out there supporting Murder Shelf Book Club. I never take my Murder Bookies for granted, not ever. I am also going to be asking for book suggestions. What books would you like me to feature on the podcast? 
I have a few in my hopper, but it's time I asked you what you would like to be hearing about. So contact me on Twitter at Shelf Club or Facebook or Instagram at Murder Shelf Book Club or email me, Jill, at MurderShelfBookClub.com. I'm looking forward to your ideas, murder bookies. And listen, don't limit yourself to American stories. Feel free to cover the world. And don't forget, I am taking a little mini vacation after this episode so I can sort out my process now that I am running solo. I will be back, I promise. I just need to work out some details here. So please have a little patience after this. Okay, that last episode ends with Harriet confronting her serial killer husband, Roger Kibbe, and asking him the why question we all wanted the answers to. Why have you killed these women? Haven't you killed enough? And he coldly replies, No. Oh my God, I had shivers all over me. Reading that left me stunned. I think you can understand why I highly recommend reading Trace Evidence by Bruce Henderson. It's truly one of the best true crime books I have read. In these murders, the one constant that links the series together was the non-functional cutting, the serial killer's signature. He brought scissors with him to the crime, using them to make a series of random cuts into the clothing of his victims that served no useful purpose other than satisfying some bizarre, twisted psychological need. A huge turning point is the hiring of trace evidence criminologist Faye Springer, who spends hours upon hours staring into petri dishes under high-powered electron microscopes, seeing into that magical realm that the naked eye cannot. The trace evidence that would prove Kibbe's downfall. Law enforcement told suspect Roger Kibbe that the cord he'd used to strangle Darcy Brackenpole had microscopic specks of red paint on it, as did cords found at other crime scenes and on those in Roger's possession. They had him cold. It mattered not. Still, Roger refused to tell them a thing. Given Roger's age, he's in his 40s, they deduced he'd have about 35 victims at this point, and they only knew about five with any certainty. Valentine's Day, 1991, the people of the state of California versus Roger Reese Kibbe began in South Lake Tahoe with El Dorado's district attorney, Robert Drossel, leading the prosecution. Tall, fair-haired, he'd been both prosecutor and defense attorney, a public defender, and a police officer. All right, so this man had seen it from all sides, and he knows his stuff. He had like a 90% conviction rate. And as rare as the serial killer cases were, this case is still composed mostly of circumstantial evidence, so it is going to prove challenging. The PA office decided not to seek the death penalty for Kibbe. What? Like, why? I mean, this guy killed five women. Well, at this time, under California law, multiple murders that did fit the, quote, special circumstances that were required for the death penalty, but each of these homicides took place in different jurisdictions, so they had to be tried separately, not together. Fun fact, 
This law would change as a result of the Roger Kibbe case. In California today, when a serial killer murders across jurisdiction lines, there can be one trial covering all the victims, not three or four in various jurisdictions. This is much easier on the families of the victims and on municipal resources. Now, today, there's often a plea deal, which doesn't result in a trial at all. Just sentencing. We saw this in the Golden State Killer case, which we covered in Episode 2. Anywho, El Dorado was prosecuting Gibby for the murder of Darcy Frackenpole, the one murder with the strongest evidence. At the pre-trial hearing, Kibby's attorney was ex-cop Phil Kahn, who went back and forth with Robert Drossel over procedure, objection, sustained, objection, overruled, repeat. Drossel planned to present to the jury the uncharged crimes, the three murders in the I-5 series, underscoring Kibby's motive, opportunity, and the modus operandi. But first... Drossel had to prove to Superior Court Judge Terrence M. Finney that Kibbe had this unique M.O., his, quote, criminal signature that happened at each killing, plus the physical evidence that was the key that tied Roger to the other deaths. Judge Finney, nicknamed King of the Mountain, as he is the only Superior Court Judge in South Lake Tahoe, no one knew how he would rule on this, he fairly evenly ruled for the prosecution and the defense in the past. And this ruling is going to make or break the prosecution's case. Ultimately, the King of the Mountain ruled in Drossel's favor. That was a big one for the prosecution. Okay, so Phil Kahn is going to roll with the ruling. Now he's going to have to investigate these other cases. So Kahn asked and received help with a second attorney. Tom Kolpakoff joining Kibbe's legal team. Kolpakoff would handle the scientific evidence part of the trial. Drossel presents Darcy's murder first, followed by Deborah Guffey's assault. She's the sex worker who survived Kibbe's attack, followed by Stephanie Brown and Charmaine Chabra, the young women Kibbe abducted and killed from I-5, then Laura Hedick, the young prostitute he killed. Karen Finch, had not been strangled like the rest of the women. She had had her throat cut. So Drossel decides not to include Karen's case. Because it has this different M.O., it opened up the possibility that the defense might be able to do the overall presentation harm, putting a question mark in the minds of jurors. Taking the chance was just not worth it. But a big question remains. Deborah Ann's testimony is critical to the cohesion of the case. Would Deborah Ann Guffey show up to testify? The prosecution took jurors via bus to the various crime scene locations. Henderson writes that this was not, quote, a scenic tour, but a trail of the most repugnant behavior by a human being, end quote. Drossel opted not to include evidence from Kibbe's juvenile address record of 15-year-old Roger stealing women's clothing and cutting it up, or of him stealing women's underwear, wearing it, tying himself up, and claiming to have been kidnapped, molested, acting out some weird fantasies, at least twice that we know of. 
I have to say I have included it because Roger did not wake up one morning at 40 plus years of age and begin repeatedly killing women. Serial killing just doesn't work like that. It has long roots going way back into childhood development, strong indicators of nurture playing a role here. I also believe there's a lot of nature, too, given the studies of the brains of psychopaths by Dr. James Fallon and Dr. Adrian Rain. It is, however, not inevitable, but still this testimony would go a long way towards motivation, in my opinion. But at the time, it was felt that this information was just too prejudicial for the jury to hear. Well, prejudicial or accurate, it is directly relevant to the modus operandi of the killer. It is his behavior and his arrest record. So I would have used it. Just saying. At trial, Khan helped his opening statement until the defense began its case. First witness was Detective Jim Watson, who had investigated the body that was found on September 17, 1987. A Jane Doe at this early part of the investigation, pantyhose was found, part being used to gag the victim, part being bound up in the victim's black chiffon jacket, which was fashioned into a garage operated by a branch. Not far from the body, several white pieces of cordage and the victim's pink dress were located. Not far from the roadway, the final piece of cordage and another piece of her jacket and a pair of white lace panties were discovered. Dr. Richard Sander, who conducted 8,500 autopsies during his career, testified that the cause of death was ligature strangulation. The use of the garrote was deliberate to control the victim to keep her still. She had also been struck on the head, possibly knocking her unconscious. Phil Kahn asked if her hair had been cut. No, I didn't notice anything like that, was the response by Dr. Sander. The next day of trial centered around identifying Jane Doe as Darcy Frackenpole. Her friend Kim Quackenbush testified that they had worked together as prostitutes in the summer of 1987, and she had last seen Darcy on August 24, 1987. Kim identified Darcy's clothes, the black chiffon jacket, and the pink dress. Another witness, Carol Stockton, saw Darcy get into a small white foreign car and she recognized the driver as she had spoken to him herself. When Carol approached him, he snarled, Get away from the car, bitch. Carol identified Roger Kibbe as the driver from a photo lineup, and now, again, she identified him in the courtroom. Now, Phil Kahn tried to undermine Carol's credibility as a witness. He asked Carol if she'd seen photos of Kibbe in the newspapers prior to the police photo lineup. No, I hadn't, she responded. He followed up, quote, in June 1988, did an investigator from the DA's office interview you? End quote. Well, he had. He continued, did he show you pictures? Yes, of Darcy and her boyfriend, but no others. Well, did he show you pictures of a small white car? No, she didn't remember. Did he show you pictures of an older man? She said, quote, he might have. I don't remember. He said somebody had been arrested. End quote. Had Khan undermined Carol's testimony? Well, only the jury really knew for sure. I don't think he did a great job there. A relief manager from Public Storage General, where the Kibbies were, Doris Sampson, testified that Roger had access to their white Hyundai 
and that Roger had had a black eye in late August 1987. Doris remembered this because she had tripped and gotten a black eye at the same time. Roger had told her he'd been drinking at a tavern and was jumped by a couple of guys. An earlier witness testified that Roger had told him that a fight at a truck stop had caused the black eye. So which was it? Hmm. A lot of varying stories about the black eye's origins, Roger. Hmm. Darcy's mother, Judy Frackenpole, testified next, hoping that the Valium would work as she faced her daughter's killer. She looked at Kibby as he stared at the tabletop, not meeting her gaze. Judy thought Kibby looked like the average schnook who drank beer and watched football on TV, a completely unremarkable guy. She testified that she'd last seen Darcy at her brother's birthday party in July. They had spoken on the phone in August, but after August 23rd, she had never heard from Darcy again. And then it was as if everyone holding their breath let it out at the same time. Deborah Ann Guffey walked into the courtroom, ready to testify to the prosecution's immense relief. Oh, thank God, many sighed inwardly. In an outpatient drug treatment program, it was a rough road Deborah was trying to stay on. Drossel quickly went over the facts of Deborah's life, that she was a sex worker for the last 10 years, a heroin addict, that she was currently in rehab because she was pregnant. Deborah deftly testified about Kibby's assault on her at the golf club parking lot, attempting to handcuff her, grabbing her hair, smashing her face, the threat he'd uttered, don't struggle and you won't get hurt, cunt. Crying softly at times, she was a victim that lived. Move over, Harry Potter. This is real life here. Khan's turn came next. He'd thought that Guffy was vulnerable, planning to get her to blow her testimony. Then he saw Deborah enter the court and his heart sank. The spiky hair, gaunt, vapid, drugged out eyes were gone. Deborah was wearing maternity clothes and an I Love Jesus pin. If Khan pushed too hard, it would boomerang back on him. Bringing out that she'd been arrested the night of the assault for an outstanding warrant was about as far as he could go, and he ended it there. Next up were the police officers who'd arrested Kibby, who itemized the contents of his crime kit, most significant, the two pieces of white cord that turned into the garage. The Sac County fingerprint expert testified he'd found Kibby's right ring fingerprint on the handcuffs he tried to put on Deborah and Guffey. Ouch. Next up is my favorite person in the story, criminalist Faye Springer. Quoting her, Faye explained to the jury that, quote, Trace evidence refers to a category of physical evidence that's usually small in size. It normally would include fiber, hair, paint, and polymer evidence. Also, particle identification such as pollens or woods or plant material, end quote. It usually requires a microscope, as used by Faye, to identify what's what. Quickie definitions. Fibers are the basic elements that make up fabric. Individual fibers are single units used to make up thread. Threads are woven into some kind of fabric. Right, that makes sense. 
Fibers are easily transferred from object to object, person to person. They're strong, unlike blood or semen, and man-made fibers can last for years upon years. Faye went on to describe how she spent hours staring into the microscope, pulling out individual fibers and mounting them for individual examination. In the Darcy Frackenpole case, the carpet mat fibers of Roger Kibbe's white Hyundai were sent to the McCrone Associates in Chicago for further testing. Faye noted fibers from Darcy's dress as well, with dark particles and specks that she wanted identified. She had already scientifically determined that the Kibbe carpet fibers and those on Darcy's dress were the same in color, shape, size, dye, and made of the same polymer. Hair examination is a far less exact science than fiber analysis and cannot be used for an absolute identification, but the hairs found on Darcy's dress were similar in all ways from Roger Kibbe's thigh. The animal hair found on Darcy's dress, found to be feline, matched those of Roger Kibbe's two cats. Then came the cordage evidence. It was front and center. All seven pieces found at three different locations. The frackenpole crime scene, the cord used to make the garage, the extra cord fiber from the crime kit, and the two feet pieces found from the storage space that Roger had rented. The cordage was definitely similar, but what made them all unique from all other cords out there in the universe were the specks of red paint and the black rubber-like particles that they all had in common with each other. Faye's analysis revealed that the red paint was identical in composition on all seven pieces. They matched at the molecular level. The seven different pieces of cordage had, at one point, been in the exact same environment, a common source, where red paint had been sprayed. And with that, the court ended for the day with the jurors going home pondering that information. The next morning, defense attorney Kopakoff began questioning Faye. Had she determined how many 1986 Hyundais with that type of carpet had been produced? No, she'd written to the manufacturing plant in South Korea, but had not received a reply. Did she know whether 1985 or 1987 Hyundais had the same type of carpet? She did not. Kolpakov asked, quote, Would it be fair to say, then, from the investigation that you conducted, that you were not able to determine the number of car manufacturers that used the same carpeting as the Hyundai? End quote. Quoting Faye, she responded, In this particular case, I didn't. However, if you take a blue carpet from a Hyundai versus a blue carpet from a Ford, I would be very surprised if I couldn't tell them apart, end quote. Well, yeah, one carpet being manufactured in South Korea versus another one being manufactured in the U.S. This is the 1980s, so this global marketing stuff was very, very different then. Faye Springer was also asked if she found the source of the red paint, which she had not a red paint spill on the Kibbe car mat, but it did not match the paint from the cordage. Kolpakov also asked about the black rubber football particle shapes, and this is where the McCrone Associates came in. 
they identified them as fungal spores. When asked if she had tested whether fungus was common to floorboards of cars, Faith shook her head and said, quote, Well, only that it's common to the floorboards of my personal car that has french fries growing out of it with lots of fungus at the moment. And the court erupts into laughter and there are no further questions. Now, if you recall from episode 27, it was criminalist Jim Streeter who first noticed the non-functional cutting that linked to the cases. These cuts that had no obvious purpose, which Jim explains to the jury. He had never seen such a thing before. It was highly, highly distinctive ritual, very unique to this case. At the end of the day, it was going really well for the prosecution. But a hard truth emerged. If Faye Springer hadn't moved to Sacramento, Roger Kibbe would not be on trial for murder. Now, no matter how hard you plan and rehearse, surprises still occur during trials. The pathologist who had done Stephanie Brown's autopsy testified that she died from asphyxia due to ligature strangulation and being submerged in the water. Prosecutor Drossel's eyebrows shot upward. This was news to him. Believe me, it was news to me, too. The pathologist stated, quote, There was an abundant, frothy white fluid in her air passages. This can occur with strangulation alone, but it usually means the victim has inhaled water, with mixes with air to produce froth, end quote. Huh. So if you recall, the guy that Vito Bertaccini had to fight with to get a rape kit done hadn't thought it important enough to mention to the detectives that Stephanie was likely breathing when she hit the water. He waited until testifying in court to bring up this information. What a dick. What a dick. Remember, her family is in court listening to this for the first time. What a complete joke. What a terrible person. I'm sorry, he's just terrible. Now, when Charmaine Sabra's mother, Carmen Ansolini, entered the room to testify, her eyes locked on Kibby, and she just couldn't help herself and started yelling, Hey, that, that's him. That's the guy. That's him. And the judge just glares at her. That, that's enough. But her loud accusation just totally shattered that, you know, sterile formality of the courtroom, and it puts everybody on edge and the jury as well, and I can't blame her for losing her composure, can you? I I mean, I can't. So Carmen takes the stand and testifying about the night that she and Charmaine go out to enjoy themselves, dancing, they stop for a bite to eat, the car breaks down, Kibby stops to help them, and she starts to, to sob. Carmen explained that she hadn't been able to identify Kibby in a lineup because he'd gained weight and he'd grown a beard, But today, she was absolutely sure that was the guy, that is the man who killed her daughter. Oh, so hard what these families have to go through in these things. Faye Springer is recalled to the stand to discuss Charmaine Sabra's evidence. In the investigation, Jim Streeter had gone over her pantyhose with the tape lifts. Later, Faye surveys all the evidence and realized that the pantyhose were inside out. For the record, in case you have never worn pantyhose, it is virtually impossible to take pantyhose off 
right side out. You, you just can't fight them that way. Meanwhile, the side that would have all the trace evidence is on the wrong side when Streeter does the tape lifts. He's a guy. He's not going to know this. So flipping them, Faye finds the blue carpet fibers, nylon triangular materials from a velour fabric, and this matched Kippy's Dotson 280Z. She also testifies that from Laura Hedrick's gray socks, Faye finds fibers from the white Maverick seats, a multi-component rayon fiber, which match Roger's Maverick. So both women have fibers from different cars driven by Roger Kibbe on them. Devastating. The final witness who tied all of this together was Lieutenant Ray Biondi, who qualified as an expert on serial killing, even though Khan had objected to that designation. Asked what some of the common denominators a homicide detective looked for in a suspected serial killing case, Biondi answered, Are there commonalities between the victims? How were victims obtained by the killer? Are there common threads in the manner of killing and in the activity that occurred with the victims? Biondi answers that all the victims had been vulnerable to a stranger, whether engaging sex work or broken down on the side of a long, lonely stretch of highway. All the victims suffered some sexual assault, were partially nude, with restraints used as a method of control, and their bodies dumped a good distance away from the killing site, which created difficulties with interdepartment cooperation for law enforcement. All the victims' clothes showed non-functional cutting, the first time this had been seen in a serial investigation anywhere. All the victims' cause of death was ligature strangulation. All of the women were young, partially nude, and there was some sexual motivation at play. Biondi summed it up. In his expert opinion, with all the evidence they had, there was a signature of one killer in these cases. The people rested. The defense did not call Roger Kibbe to testify. Uh, no shocker there. Khan did call a licensed psychologist, an expert on eyewitness identification, to poke holes in those who identified Kibby, though the psychologist hadn't actually spoken to any of the I-5 eyewitnesses, so his testimony was purely theoretical. Basically, he said that memory is not like a video camera. That is true. It is far more fragile. The next witness was Ray Farrell a master parachute rigger with his own company. He testified about how common 550 cord is, called this because it has a braking strength of 550 pounds, which is about 250 kilos. Farrell testified that some parachute cord has color markings done at the factory to indicate where to cut and sew. It can be any color, not necessarily red. It's applied with markers, but can be spray-painted on about four fingers width wide. Prosecutor Drossel asked what was the most common way of marking parachute cord. The answer is felt marker. No more questions from the prosecution. John Thornton, a professor of forensic science at University of California, Berkeley, spoke about the particles that Faye Springer had seen. Quote, 
It was six microns in size. That's six millionth of a meter, which is a little greater than a yard. So it's an itsy bitsy particle. If it was any smaller, I don't think it would have been any value for forensic purposes. Yeah, but it wasn't any smaller, Professor Thornton, was it? I'm not trying to be snarky here, but facts matter. It wasn't smaller. It was six microns, not less than six, so it matters. So the jurors begin deliberating at 9.05 a.m. on March 18, 1991. The jury sent a note to Judge Finney saying that they reached a verdict at 1.54 p.m. They said, quote, We, the jury, find defendant Roger Reese Kibbe guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree, end quote. Fifty-three days later, Judge Finney denied Kibbe's application for probation. Oh, my God, can you even imagine the goal? And sentenced him to 25 years to life. A convicted murderer, Roger's concern? He didn't want to go to the same prison as James Driggers, Laura Hedrick's boyfriend. The El Dorado County Sheriff, Bob Doherty, blinked. Why was he worried about this guy? Quote, because I killed his girlfriend, end quote, said Kibby. Doherty was curious. Roger, you're finally admitting you killed someone. Yeah, I've killed a few women. What's the big deal? And there you have it. That is the mind of a serial killer. What is all the fuss over killing some women? What? What's the big deal? Alrighty, wow. Okay, update on Harriet Kibby. She later confirmed that Roger admitted killing Kathleen Quinones, who I will tell you about shortly. In 1996, Harriet received a 25th wedding anniversary card from Roger. Latest I could find out is she sells insurance door-to-door with her common-law husband, Robert Hunter. She never divorced Roger Kibbe. I'm not judging murder bookies. It is really difficult, and we cannot know what Harriet has been through. Vito Bertaccini, he never forgot the I-5 Strangler case, and he knew that there must be other victims out there. With improvements in technology, in 2000, Vito obtained a search warrant to collect a sample of Roger Kibbe's blood, trying to tie him to other murders. It took three years, but it was worth the wait. He laid it out to Roger. The DA would prosecute for the newly connected murder victims, this time with special circumstances, which meant the death penalty was the likely outcome. Want to avoid this? Start talking. For Vito and his colleagues, this is not about Kibby's life, but about bringing closure to these families. And Kibby starts negotiating. Okay, I can tell you about four of them. This goes back and forth and back and forth, with Roger insisting that he would, quote, stand on seven. He confessed to killing Darcy Frackenpole, Stephanie Brown, Charmaine Sabra, Laura Hedrick, Kathleen Quinones, Barbara Ann Scott, and Luann Burley who was the 1979 case that Harriet had mentioned to Vito so long ago in that very first interview. I researched all I could about Catherine Kelly Quinones. She married John Quinones in 1976 when she was very young, only 14. He was 19, and they were living in Citrus Heights. Catherine was last seen alive 
just after her release from the Sacramento County Jail on November 5, 1986, when she was 25. She was reported missing shortly thereafter, though her husband was unable to be found early in the investigation. She was working as a sex worker in the Sacramento area. On December 21, 1986, her decomposing body was discovered 50 miles away on a hillside off Knoxville, Berryessa Roads, near Pope Creek Bridge, by two kids tossing a frisbee. Catherine had been strangled with a garrote made with two wooden dowels and parachute 550 cord. Her ponytail had been cut off. First identified under an alias, Tracy Lynn Goble, the local newspaper printed an update to correct the information. Napa detectives suspected there might be a link between her murder and the others going on in the Sacramento area at the time. Forensic analysts showed that the fibers on her socks matched the carpet fibers in Roger Kibbe's car. At the time, Faye Springer said that it's hard when evidence gets old, although things like hair and fiber are not likely to decompose. Unlike the other I-5 victims, Rabiondi stated at the time that Catherine's clothing was cut differently, but exactly how differently I was not able to find out. There is even less information on Barbara Ann Scott, age 29, who was kidnapped in Pittsburgh, California in 1986. I suspect her missing person case was reported by her sister, Pamela Reed. On July 2, 1986, Barbara's body was found near Lone Tree Golf Course in Antioch, which happens to be next to an airport from where Roger Kibbe went skydiving. She had accepted a date from a guy who owned a furniture shop and had a hot tub. He assaulted her, made her kneel before him, then strangled her with her own sweater. Kibbe then hid her body on the golf course. One of the Jane Doe's was eventually identified as Robin Simpson, who was also a sex worker, last seen leaving Sacramento County Jail in April 1987. Her body was found on June 12, 1987, just off Highway 50 in El Dorado County. When Kibbe went to court in 2009, about a dozen people representing the victim's family attended and spoke. Barbara Ann's sister, Pamela Reed, spoke, addressing Kibbe directly, asking him to look at her, and then called him a soulless sociopath. Miss Reed promised to return home and put photographs of her sister back in place because until now it had been far too painful. Good for her. The final speaker of the day was Patrick Green, the brother of Kathleen Quinones. He began to choke up with emotion almost immediately, but managed to stay that she had left a son and a daughter before turning on his heels and exiting the courthouse. Kibby finally admitted to the 1977 killing of Lua Ann Burley, dumping her body in the Lake Berryessa region of North Napa. He confessed that he overpowered Burley, drove her to the lake, raped her at knife point, strangled her, and dumped her in a riverbed. Walnut Creek officer Bill Jeha got a call from Vito Bertaccini that he and Kibby were retracing his steps trying to find her body. All right, Vito is a better man than I because he would take Roger to McDonald's for breakfast, drive through only people, don't get excited, but he'd get him an egg McMuffin and a Coke, trying to ingratiate himself with this fiend 
hoping he'd make more confessions and lead him to more bodies. I get it. I just, I just don't think I can do this job. I'm glad I'm a podcaster. All right, Kibby recalled in vivid detail the road pullout where he parked his van somewhere off Highway 128 between Highway 121 and Berryessa Dam, but Roger came up dry, no Llewellyn, crushing everyone's hope. But all was not lost. Napa County Sheriff Deputy Mike Frey went to the coroner's office looking for unidentified remains and found some. In storage was a wallaby boot containing part of a foot, which was found at the north end of the lake in November 1977, two months after Burley's disappearance. It had to be hers, right? Jaha flew to Washington State and got a DNA sample from Llewellyn's brother, Carl Burley. It would take nearly a year before they heard back. No match. Oh my god, it's crushing. But this is the reality of how it goes sometimes. Not to be deterred, Frey tried again with cadaver dogs, and the only thing they got from this site was poison oak. They searched again, finding a promising site, only to have Kivy dismiss it. It didn't have the boulders he remembered. But eventually, they discovered that the site did in fact have these boulders, only it had been disturbed due to road construction and the boulders had been buried. Aha! But this time when they went to Kibby, he said, no, 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 the rocks, they're the wrong color. I mean, oh my God, give me a friggin' break here. Honestly, they're just about ready to give up. I'm about ready to give up. I am so frustrated just telling you this story. I mean, erosion, construction, animal activity, years are going by. Kibby's not even sure anymore. Is this just a completely impossible task? But what about Wilma Burley, who wants her daughter to come home? What about Carl? What about some sense of closure? So they keep pressing forward. All right, new guy, fresh eyes. Napa County Sheriff Deputy Mike Bartlett's beat is like Berryessa, and he got permission from the Sheriff Department to nosy around. He teams up with Mike Frey, who's supervising now, and he agrees to help with yet another search, thinking... There needs to be a miracle, and maybe this mic is the miracle we need. So Frey and Bartlett pull out this old, worn, yellow aerial map, studying where searches had been conducted and what areas had not. And they came back to the same spot with the wrong colored boulders. This was the place. It had to be. So they hike up there on March 10th, 2011, And within five minutes, Mike holds up a white something about the size of a quarter in his palm. Anthropologists at Chico State University said it belonged to a female human. All right, how did he even see a bone fragment that small? Right guy, right place, right time. That's a miracle. The DNA was processed as everyone held their breaths. This kind of analysis is not finished in 45 minutes in an episode, Murder Bookies. Three long, torturous months later, on June 22, 2011, Lieutenant Leroy Anderson from the Napa County Coroner's Office called, asking Frey if he would like to do the notification. Carl Burley's DNA matched the fragment of DNA in that little bone. Llewellyn had been found. It was the miracle his family needed to bring her home. 
<sighs> so, Seattle's Robert Salonga reported in the East Bay Times that Llewellyn's mom, Wilma Burley, received a phone call that out-of-state law enforcement were coming to see her. Now, she knows what this means, okay? Something has happened with the case. And a Sergeant Tom Cachon arrived, and he tells her the news. Carl Burley felt that, quote, getting that bone back was like getting Ellen back. I can actually touch her now, end quote. Vito Bertaccini was amazed. Quote, we all have a better chance of winning the lottery than finding that bone, end quote. He's not kidding. As Cashin, Frey, Bertaccini, and Pete Rosenquist, Bertaccini's tireless partner back in the day, returned to the boulder-laden riverbed and laid a bouquet of flowers to mark Llewellyn Burley's true final resting place for the family, they also did so for themselves. To circle back, a tight-lipped Roger Kibbe had spoken very little over the years in jail. What he revealed was horrifying, frankly. He viewed strangulation as a peaceful way to die that the women he'd killed just went to sleep. He also refused to admit to killing Karen Finch, whose throat had been violently slashed. Vito suspected Kibby saw this murder as a failure, so he was just not going to own it. Kibby is reported to have said that he held two cans in his head, one he'd opened and shared with the police, and one in which held his secret sealed stash. Stash of what? Well, the sensitive kills that he could revisit that were his and his alone. He also refused to discuss anything about the cutting. The non-functional cutting? Nothing. This guy is a dirtbag. So September 2009, as part of a plea deal to avoid the death penalty, Kibbe pled guilty to six additional murders, beginning six additional life sentences without the possibility of parole. He was eventually asked about the ring and the sneakers he had had wife Harriet throw away for him. He claimed the ring belonged to a neighbor he had robbed, and the sneakers had Luann Burley's blood on them, so he knew they needed to be thrown away. I do not buy it for a second. Souvenirs are taken in effort to relive the fantasy of the killing over and over again, to sustain that euphoria of the kill from the intensity experienced. He kept the sneakers from 1977 into the 21st century. No, no. I think they're from a later murder, possibly Karen Finch's, because there's a lot of blood involved, or another victim who is yet to be discovered, but not Llewellyn's. Now, with his new status as a convicted serial killer, Kibbe didn't have the same prison privileges that he previously enjoyed, and he's forced to exist with a lot of violent inmates. He feared running into the relatives of someone he killed who would want retribution, or someone just wanted to make a name for himself seeking prison macho fame. And it's uh, not often that we get to see karma in action, and this is one of those rare cases. I have to report to you that 81-year-old Roger Kibbe was murdered at the Mule Creek State Prison on February 27, 2021, by his prison cellmate, 40-year-old Jason Budrow. Now get this who strangled him to death. Karma. There it is. 
a killer killed the serial killer. Dexter fans must be swooning. I guess Roger felt he died peacefully, being strangled, that he just went to sleep, that it was just beautiful poetic justice. Now listen, why I do not gloat and gush over murder, I do believe that justice was at work at some cosmic level. But wait for this one. This provides some real insight into this murder. Jason Budrow wrote a six-page detailed letter to the Mercury News Bay Area in California titled Ascension, where he admits to deciding to kill Kibby back in November 2020 after watching a true crime television show about him. Budrow said he watched, in air quotes here, horrifying disgust and heart-wrenching empathy and it was the report of his youngest victim that impacted me the deepest, end of air quote. That would be 17-year-old Darcy Frackenpole. Wow, this is not a stand-up guy, okay? As reported by Nate Gartrill of the Desert Sun, Budrill went on, quote, My actions were drafted out for specific intent, cognitive complexity, and were generally more nefarious than a haphazard murder spat. End quote. No, no, this is no run-of-the-mill killing. No, no, this guy is so much more than that. You have to be impressed with him, his complexity. He's so deep. He's deep, all right. He's deep in crap. Budra goes on, quote, What started out as my original bare-bones plan of doing a straightforward homicide of a cellmate evolved into a mission for avenging that youngest girl and all of Roger Kibbe's other victims, end quote. So Kudrow sees himself as a superhero killer. Paraphrasing here, he believes the TV show was a dark omen that resonated as a spiritual calling that was later affirmed by two dream visions as my design for orchestrating my way into becoming Roger Kibbe's cellmate reached fruition to culminate in the outcome that occurred, I consecrated the inception of the waning lunar cycle with his death throes during a human sacrificial offering in a ceremonial rite of homage to the God Most High. So after he used a chokehold on Kibi, he carved a crude pentagram, minus the circle, into his body, suspecting and hoping maybe that he would be charged with desecrating a corpse. Now, do you think he might be concerned about another murder charge? Nena. He writes, quote, I am down to test my theory that no jury during a penalty phase in my potential death penalty trial will ever vote to see me executed for murdering Roger Kibbe, the I-5 strangler, end quote. While it is really, really ironic that the strangler was strangled, I really will let the powers way above my pay grade sort all of this out. I just cannot gloat over it, even for a horrible guy like this. Budrow is a terrible person. He writes more. He's not done. He did this partly because he didn't want people to think that he and Kibby had ever been friends. He said he spent months grooming Kibby with the intent of murdering him the entire time. Quote, My narcissism cannot bear the idea that people would accept the notion I somehow lived with him 
and had had enough of him and just killed him one day. No, hell no, end quote. No, murder bookies, this was premeditated murder, and Boudreaux is so full of himself. And there's more. Boudreaux believes the souls of Kivy's victims, quote, have been released from possession of their killer, and I pray now that they rest in peace, end quote. Well, I'm sure the 666 tattooed above Budro's eye is testament to his heartfelt faith here. You know, they really might have been perfect roomies for each other. What do you think, murder bookies? So, Jason Budro, age 40, why is he in prison in the first place? Oh, a decade earlier, Jason Budro was convicted of killing a woman from Riverside County, Margaret Dalton, who was 48 at the time who he claims he had been dating in 2010. In a statement issued by Margaret's family, however, they say she was a mother and a grandmother and that she was only friends with Jason. Margaret's son says that Dalton was trying to help a lost soul. Quote, Margaret was a person who always believed in a second chance. She believed that there was good in everyone and she was still searching for the good in Jason Budrow when he took her life. End quote. Sounds like Margaret was a really decent, decent person. After strangling Margaret in his trailer in Good Hope, he desecrated her body. I couldn't find out exactly what that meant, and that's okay. He put it in the trunk of his car, and he drove to Lake Elsinore Sheriff Station to turn himself in. Budrow pled guilty, saying he asked Dalton to come over that night, planning to murder her. I see a pattern here, guys. Budrow also told police, quote, she had to die because she was a police informant and undercover officers were watching his every move because Jason was involved in drug dealing and pimping. And this guy is also a convicted sex offender. So he is a delusional piece of crap. He gets no applause from me for anything he's ever done in his life, especially killing Kibby, which he seems to think is some grand achievement. He writes more. Quote, as for me, I now have my single cell status. Yes, that is what this whole thing was about, getting rid of his roommate. Well, he'll have no more cellmates, not ever again. And that's not me saying it. He is in administrative segregation for a year, and he will probably never have another cellmate. He says, what had started out as my original bare bones plan of doing a straightforward homicide of a cellmate to obtain my single-cell status evolved into a mission for avenging that youngest girl and all of Roger Kibbe's victims. Yeah, he's full of crap and he's batshit nuts. Of Kibbe's murder, Llewellyn Burley's brother Carl told CBS 13, I don't have any sympathy for him at all. Their mother Wilma, who is in her 90s, said, quote, He chose to kill, and I can't really hate him. I just feel regret, and I don't spend much time being angry. I think he's being taken care of, end quote. Both she and Carl try to keep Llewellyn's memory alive to this day. Darcy Frackenpole's mother Judy commented, The good Lord's justice, karma. The man deserved to die the way he did. I think, too, now she's totally at peace, knowing that this happened and this man is going to hell, end quote. Darcy's younger brother, Larry, said that Kibby's death was the closure he never knew he needed. 
Well, since I heard the news, it's like a weight I was carrying around for the last 30 plus years that I didn't realize I was carrying, end quote. And Michaela Hudsinger, sister of Stephanie Brown, expressed similar sentiments, saying, quote, may he rot in hell, a lonely, evil old monster. He's not God. He's not even human, end quote. Well said, Michaela. Monsters are a trial. No doubt about it. Monsters are a trial. In second case, I follow up on the threads not traveled. So in Trace Evidence, Bruce Henderson wrote of the poisoning of a beauty queen that pulled our group of law enforcement away from investigating the I-5 murders. This young woman was carrying Grace Winslet, who won the title of Miss English Leather in Las Vegas, Nevada in early 1987. Blonde, stunning, lovely, 21 years old, an aspiring model. Usually, Karen took someone with her to her modeling photo sessions, but on this particular day, her boyfriend was tied up and no one else was available, so Karen went alone. Later, her boyfriend came to her apartment, where she'd left a note with the address of the modeling job. He went there to see if Karen was there, and the photographer, Paul Mack, denied knowing Karen. Later, Paul Mack called him, admitting he did have an appointment with Karen, but he canceled it. Mm, That's a red flag. Fun fact. The most common occupations for victims are nurses, waitresses, and models, according to criminologist Michael Andrew Arnfield, who was once a police officer from London, Ontario, called the serial killer capital of Canada. Not a fun fact. Karen checked two of those boxes. Meanwhile, the Sacramento Bay publicized a secret witness list reward fund sponsored by businesses in the area, and there was a $2,500 reward for information about what may have happened to Karen, which is a fantastic idea and still going as of September 11, 2021. It wasn't until two weeks later, on March 3, 1987, that Karen's blue Dotson 260Z was found at a motel parking lot by an electrician friend of hers. Not know if he received the award, but I kind of hope he did. Karen Grace Winslet's body was finally found stuffed in the trunk of her car. A memorial service was held for her at First Evangelical Free Church in Sacramento on March 8, 1987. How tragic that her life was cut short far too soon. Initially, the autopsy found no obvious cause of death for Karen, but confirmed that she had been raped. When the toxicology report came back, it showed the painkiller Percodan in Karen's system at more than 25 times the lethal limit. She had been poisoned to death. Meanwhile, the police were investigating. They interviewed Miss Paul Mack at his home, where he interestingly had no photography equipment according to Sac Sheriff County Detective Bob Bell. Now, that's a name we know from the I-5 Strangler investigation. Looking into this Paul Stephen Max background, we find that he is the prime suspect in a 1981 murder of a secretary from Marion, Ohio, 19-year-old Annette Huddle. She was a member of the high school class of 1981 who took a job at the Marion County Country Club working for Paul Mack. 
full of life, headstrong, wanting to be independent, July 8, 1981, Annette was missing after she declined her usual ride home from her grandparents. She was never seen alive again. Four days later, a family canoeing on the Olentini River nearby discovered her partially naked body. Annette had been sexually assaulted and killed, and the cause of death was unknown. During the Ohio Marion County Sheriff Department investigation, Paul Stephen Mack was cooperative, but insisted he had no idea of what happened to Annette. Co-workers had a different story, however, claiming that Paul had offered to give Annette a ride home. They reported that Mack had been hitting on Annette all summer to her chagrin. According to Sergeant Tim Bailey, Mack was definitely a police person of interest. It turns out he was also on probation for felony theft and was in violation of his parole. So back in prison, the police were able to search Mac's residence, finding that he had burnt something in his fireplace, something with beading, possibly a macrame purse similar to the one Annette carried, and that was missing. But without more conclusive evidence, the police could not make the case that Paul Stephen Mack had killed Annette. After Paul Mack got out of jail, he went to California. But the leopard does not change his spots. Now he was a suspect in another murder, the case of the poisoned beauty queen, Karen Grace Winslet. Detective Bob Bell interviewed Paul about his whereabouts the morning Karen Winslet died. With his friend beside him as a supportive witness, Paul's alibi was he'd been out with his brother that morning and then went to his hairdresser. When Belle went to speak to the hairdresser, she did confirm Paul's hair appointment, but at 3 p.m. he had canceled his 10 a.m. appointment. When Belle went to speak with Paul's friend, you know, the supportive witness, turned out to be his dentist. During the interview, the dentist confirmed that he had overprescribed Percodan for Paul. Huh. Percodan, the same drug that had overdosed Karen? Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Now, while this is all evidence, it may still not be enough to convict Paul Stephen Mack of murdering her. But Sac County wanted to speak with him again and contacted his attorney, because by now, Paul Mack had lawyered up, which is the smart thing to do. They made an agreement that Paul Mack would turn himself in for the interview, but instead he fled. 1987, Salt Lake City, Utah. Margie Bolt is raising her three girls and getting accustomed to being single after decades of marriage. Out dancing at a Western club, she meets handsome Jean-Paul Lanier, a chef who has graduated from Cordon Bleu in Paris. They head it off, begin to get to know each other, and start going out. They have things in common. They're both parents to daughters. He's very charming. He may be a bit over the top with flowers and kind of his emotional intensity, but hey, they're getting to know each other. After his daughter is killed in an accident, Sean and Margie really bond. He is a successful chef who appears on a local cooking show. Money appears to be no issue. That is until it was, and Margie discovers that the gold necklace that he wore regularly has been pawned. Quelling her doubts, Margie and Sean marry on Valentine's Day 1988, with Sean Paul taking over the family finances. Fortunately, 
Margie trusts her gut when a nagging feeling rose up that something was off. She noticed that his daughter's death certificate was off. Wrong date, no state decal, bunch of misspellings. Confronting him, Sean claimed that he was in the witness protection program because he'd gotten involved with the mafia in New Zealand. Wow. Okay. Not buying this load of crap for a second, Margie pretends to believe her new husband, but starts digging deeper into his background. Timing is everything, murder bookies. At the same time, Margie's friend calls her. She has seen America's Most Wanted TV show, and a guy wanted for two murders, Paul Stephen Mack, looks just like her new husband, Sean Paul Lanier. Margie's investigation kicks into high gear with her trying to get his fingerprints from a glass. Okay, she is my heroine. Margie Danielson, as she's known today, has guts. And I am calling the police at this point, not dusting for fingerprints in case you're wondering. She's getting fingerprints. Wow, she's amazing. That's dangerous, by the way. Make the call to the police. Meanwhile, another tip from America's Most Wanted came into the Ohio Marion County Sheriff, John Butterworth. Listen, the good that this show has done cannot be expressed more loudly. Thank you, John Walsh. And now in its new format with Elizabeth Vargas and in pursuit with John and Callahan Walsh. All worthy programming doing a great job. Commercial over. So the tip comes in from a woman who worked with Mac in the Marion County Country Club. A month earlier, in February 1988, she had received a call checking on the references of a Sean Paul Lanier from Salt Lake City, Utah. Lanier had claimed he had been employed at the Marion County Country Club and was the director of an Ohio holding company. This woman knew nobody named Sean Paul Lanier. In the America's Most Wanted broadcast, however, it said that Paul Mack had once claimed to be the director of an Ohio holding company. This coincidence struck the viewer tipster, who then called in the tip suggesting that Paul Stephen Mack was in Salt Lake City using the name Sean Paul Lanier and had a cooking show on television, Snap. Butterworth calls Sac County Bob Bell, who calls Utah's Homicide Department, and they pull Sean Paul Lanier's prints. Where did they get Lanier's prints? From the pawn slip for the necklace. This proves that Sean Paul Lanier and Paul Stephen Mack are one and the same guy. Next day, Margie notices men sitting in the car outside her home and her chef hubby climbing out the bedroom window? Busted. Sean Lanier is arrested. He's cool. He's calm. He's collected. He's unconcerned. And he tells Margie he has no idea why he's being arrested. This guy is so arrogant, so confident that he could avoid detection because he changed his appearance. He put on weight. He'd given up bodybuilding. And Margie now learns that she isn't his second wife, but his eighth Yes, eight wives. At his trial, Paul Mack actually testifies, and he explains that Karen Winslet tried to seduce him, and he was the one who rejected her. 
In this despondent state of despair, Karen took the drugs and overdosed herself. The jury took three weeks to come to a verdict, finding him guilty of murder. His testimony was just a bit too pat to be believable. So, Paul Stephen Mack was sentenced to 25 years for Karen's murder. He died in 2018. Law enforcement had just not had enough forensic evidence to try Mack for the death of Annette Huddle, and this murder was left unsolved, which was terrible for her family. But the story does not end here. This takes a huge turn in 2020 when Paul Mack's attorney calls Sergeant Tim Bailey. He wanted law enforcement to know, but especially the family of Annette Huddle, that Paul Mack confessed to killing Annette before he died. Relief floods. After all these years, they knew for certain what had happened to Annette and her sister, Anita Huddle Cox, now remembers her beautiful sister every single day without these questions hanging over her head. Now, another suspect that was thrown into the I-5 investigation was David Allen Rundle, who certainly looked like a real possibility as the I-5 perpetrator. Rundle proved to be a killer, but not the I-5 strangler. He would wind up confessing to Placer County Sheriff investigators and to Ray Biondi that he had killed a Filipino woman back in May 1986, his very first murder whose body was discovered beneath Pioneer Bridge in Sacramento. The woman that he killed was Elizabeth Lactowen, and she was not the last. Back in September 1986, David Allen Rundle met with Karen Maria Garcia in Colfax, California, a popular 18-year-old Roseville waitress. It's theorized that they met when she waited on him at the restaurant where she worked. On September 7, 1986, Carolyn called a friend, telling her she was taking the bus and she would be home soon. The time Carolyn was due home came and went, but no Carolyn appeared, and she never arrived home. Interviewed by police, initially, David Rundle told Placer County investigator Jeffrey Jensen that he dropped Carolyn off at the bus depot and didn't know what happened to her. Later, the story changed when David confessed that they'd driven to a remote location near Rawlings Lake Road and he strangled her and he winds up drawing a map for the homicide detectives that led to the discovery of Carolyn's body on November 21, 1986. During the subsequent trial, David admitted that he was high on weed and LSD when he killed Carolyn. About a month after Carolyn was murdered, in October 1986, 15-year-old Lancey Ann Sorison was en route to visit her stepbrother when she and Rundle met the night he strangled her to death. They were hitchhiking from Roseville to the Horseshoe Bar in Loomis, California. Lancey Ann went into town to get some weed, with David waiting. On her return, David smoked, became agitated, violent, and strangled her to death. A month later, her decomposed body was found along Highway 80, not far from Loomis. At the trial, David's defense blamed much of Rundle's violent behavior on his mother's abusive parenting, 
claiming he'd been molested and was the victim of incest that began at age eight. The defense highlighted his violent history, including sexual assaults on children, plus emotional instability. His mother, Charlotte Jane Rundle, testified during the trial. She and her husband had kicked David out of the house three years earlier when he was 18 due to his objectionable lifestyle. To her knowledge, David had been living in a car recently. She also identified a blanket found near Carolyn Garcia's body as the one that she had given to him as a present to keep warm in the back of his car. Rundle was convicted of the premeditated murders of the two teenagers, Carolyn Garcia and Lancey Ann Sorensen. Stephanie Brandish, the mother of Lancey Ann, said her heart went out to the abused child that was David Rundle. However, many children are abused and do not grow up to kill innocent little girls. Brandish said, quote, It is for the adult Rundle to accept responsibility for what he did. I realize that nothing the court or anyone else can do is going to bring my little girl or any of the other victims back, but it is also one more monster off the streets and one more guy who is not going to be killing, end quote. So true. Monsters are a trial, yo. Following his conviction for killing Carolyn and Lancey Ann, Rundle was arraigned for the murder of Elizabeth Lactowin, age 24, on May 10, 1986. They had first met along the Sacramento River near a transit camp on Front Street. Elizabeth's body was discovered near the transient campground. She was nude with her hands bound behind her back with an electrical cord. A black sock was used as a gag. David Allen Rundle was caught when he was brought in for questioning regarding the I-5 murder series. Rundle said he'd hitchhiked to Sacramento, sleeping along the Sacramento River. With somewhat impaired memory, Rundle explains that he met up with Elizabeth, they smoked some marijuana, and had sex. Something made him mad, and he strangled her to death, according to the affidavit. In November 1989, Rundle pled no contest to this murder charge, accepting life in prison for killing Elizabeth Lactawan. Defense attorney Lawrence Smith noted of the legal system, you can only kill him once. Today, Rundle remains in San Quentin Prison in California, having been sentenced to death in 1989, with that sentence upheld by the California court in 2008. There is currently a moratorium on the death penalty in California, imposed by Governor Newsom. As I've said before, I do support the death penalty because monsters are a trial. When used appropriately for the most heinous crimes, when they do have DNA evidence, it's justice. Sometimes it plays an important role in getting to the truth, so I support it. The more tools in the two box, the better. And that concludes the trilogy on trace evidence by Bruce Henderson. Please read this book. You will not be sorry. What a story. What a book is incredible. Our next book is The Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of an Abusive Husband by Gary Sosnicki. He is the great-grandson of the victim, Cecilia Ludwig, who was horribly murdered back in 1906 when wife-killing was an all-too-commonly-used term. You'll be engaged in his search for the truth, and you'll hear from Gary Sisnicki himself. I hope you'll read along with me, and if not, I am happy to tell you the story 
and offer some analysis along the way. Please leave the coveted five-star review. It really helps grow the podcast and reach new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I would love to hear from you. Follow me or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Chrome, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, wherever you can find a podcast. Until next time, murder bookies, trust your gut. Let me know what books you want me to feature. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Source material and snack and drink material for a Trace Evidence Trilogy is found at my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbeck.